Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget that they wish they had in a time capsule. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian and writer Laura Lex who only started performing full-time in 2015, and yet, since then, she's been a finalist at the 2016 Amused Moose Comedy Awards, won Best Performer in the Comedian's Choice Award at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2018, and was in the top ten of Dave's Funniest Jokes of the Fringe that year. She was the Comedian's Choice again at the 2019 Chortle Awards. Laura's TV appearances have included Roast Battle, Hypothetical, Mock the Week and Live at the Apollo. During lockdown, a series of Laura's tweets, imagining life with the Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp, went viral with over 5.6 million views, which landed her a book deal that led to the book Klopp Actually, Imaginary Life with Football's Most Sensible Heartthrob, which was released in autumn 2020. She's recently released her second book, Pivot, a book about an amateur woman's netball team, which Laura describes as the sort of book she'd like to read on holiday. She's been a guest on Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast and Sarah Millican's Standard Issue podcast, amongst others, and makes two podcasts herself, National Treasure with her friend Will Duggan and Lex Education with her brother, which she talks about a bit in this podcast, which is clearly where Laura has hit her peak as she tells us the five things from her life she'd like to have in a time capsule. Here is the irresistible Laura Flora Lex. Well, it's lovely to have you on here. I would ask you to give a sort of CV, but I give an introductory CV, so there's no need to do it. Unless, of course, you want to make up a completely false one, you know. Hello, (laughs) (laughs) my name's Susan, and I'm a 47-year-old doctor of biochemistry. Yeah, just insert Sue Perkins' CV in, and I'll have that Uh, one instead. That'd be lovely. I'm happy to do that. Yes, (laughs) my guest this week is Sue Perkins. (laughs) Wannabe. (laughs) (laughs) I worked with Sue Perkins quite a lot when she was very young. She was always fantastically shy. Really? Yeah. You wouldn't think it, would you? No. I did listen to her audiobook a a little while ago, and she was much more pensive, which I suppose everybody is in their biography. But, um, yeah, I love that when you really see the inner workings of someone that you really only see the glossy veneer of it does it's it's a good reminder that everybody's like that it's not just one or two people that go and I am the one with anxiety you sort of go no everybody's got it to a, a level wherever that line is yeah and also incredibly admirable when you then saw her go okay right I'm going in front of people now and yeah. I'm going to do this thing 
And off she would go and you'd go, wow, that's amazing. I love seeing people in a way before everybody else has found them. Yes. Yeah. I like that too. Sometimes it's a really funny thing with professionalism now where I'll see somebody who's really good and I go, you're good. Like you're really good. Mm. And they'll be doing five minutes or something. And I think, no, you've got it. And then like, there's that sort of hand in hand thing of going, oh shit, you're really good. You're (laughs) about to rocket past me and everything I've been working on, like you'll just get snapped up and go really far. And you sort of have to push that jealousy to one side and go, but you are good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also the fact that it can be done means that you can do it as well. Yeah. Everybody at their own speed, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly in the world of stand up, because every stand up comedian I talk to, makes it absolutely clear that it's a constant learning process, Mm. that you never stop learning as a stand-up. Yeah, I think for me it goes in two different tracks. The learning how to be a good comedian, Mm. um, that is lifelong game, it's always changing, and the longer you have to just like ferment in your own juices, the better (laughs) and more interesting you are. I do think (laughs) that there's a slight downside to the industry that once you've gone past your two to three years date of being around they are very unwilling to give you the opportunities you might have grown into i think i think the industry writes you off a little bit yeah so that almost that if you don't get noticed in those first three years or, or picked up and taken to that next level they don't do it I think that's that's sort of a thing that I think happens. You see mm. some phenomenal people on the circuit and you think, gosh, you are so good. You've got this audience in Stitches and I've seen you have a central city audience in Stitches, a remote village pub hall. <laughs> I've seen you do it all, that you never see them on panel shows. You never see them get those extra breaks. And I think there is a slight... You know, when when it must be difficult as a producer or whatever, and you're looking at a list of names, if you've mm-hmm. seen that name on 15 lists and gone, eh, no, you ignore it. Whereas a new exciting name is the same as all people, isn't it? You want the new and exciting. So I think I think that being a good comedian and having the most brilliant sparkling career are not necessarily completely linked. <laughs> no, no, I completely understand that. Yes, I mean, I find that in the world of acting, that mm. I work with people and I think, wow, what a fantastic actor. Where have you been? Yeah. And, and they can be in their 40s. And you've not heard of them. You've not seen them on things. And they've not been discovered, but they've been working. It's funny that, isn't it? Like when you're in a taxi and and someone will say, what did you do? And I say, oh, I'm a comedian. And they're so amazed that I have a like full-time career but they've not heard of me because they yeah. don't know and it's the same with acting you people have no idea the intricacy of the industry outside of the very 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 peak bit that you see in the mainstream yes and that assumption that if you are one of those people you either haven't made it yeah in other words you don't do it or you're one of those people at the peak yeah or you must be on your way there. That's another one that sort of, you know, th- they have an idea of what they would think succeeding in this industry would feel like. And so they assume you're aiming for that. And you actually go, I don't know, actually, I've got, I'm in quite a sweet spot at the moment. I make a full time living. I'm very happy, but I can go to the shops without anybody bothering me. Yeah. That's very lovely. Whereas some of the brilliant people, you know, that are the huge household names, you look at the stress and the toll of, of not being able to really leave the house without it, mm. knowing at least three people are going to talk to you. And, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about that. Yes, I know people who've, who've done possibly what's the best thing, which is that they've actually made an incredible amount of money. They are as rich as those people at the top, but nobody knows who they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you get all the benefits, none of the problems. Yeah, that's the genius. It's such a difficult industry to be every person in television, I think, because there's so much pressure on the people at the top. There's so much pressure on the people in the middle to find things. And the numbers are dwindling, by all accounts, apparently. Yeah. Um, No matter what a lot of it, what a lot of they, they, oh, that's not a sentence, isn't it? You know, (laughs) seemingly no matter what they try, television might be a dwindling medium. And so everybody's just in this rock and a hard place of there must be so many producers that didn't get into it to only book the same names. They they wanted to be people finding brand new talent and bringing people through, but you can't do that if if Mm. what you need is somebody that's already universally loved in order to bring viewers to your programme. So I do understand it from all angles. I think I thought, you know, you'll get good and you'll get one thing and if you're good on that, it'll open up all the other doors. And actually, 
maybe it's just me, but I felt like every single door has needed hammering on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not been that slow kaleidoscope opening of all of the doors ever so slowly. No. Um, it's been, you do one thing and then you wait two years. And annoyingly, they've all got those mechanisms that make it shut again really fiercely yeah. behind yeah. you. You walk through and go, oh, oh, no, hang on a minute. I thought that was going to stay open. Yeah. I guess everybody feels like that because from the outside you think, oh, that person's done everything and then you you haven't seen the gaps in between while they've waited and slogged and all the meetings that didn't come off. So Yeah, all those possibilities. But actually when I look back on all the possibilities that I've had and have missed, people might say, I'm rather glad I did. In the end they disappear into, well, imagine if I'd done that, everything would have been completely different. Yeah. And I've had a good time. So. <laughs> I've had a good time. <laughs> I've had a good time. <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> and in the end, that's sort of what counts. Yeah. Uh, there we are. So we're going to talk about five things from your life that you've chosen that you'd wanted a time capsule. Yeah. So how's it been, thinking about it? It's been really interesting. I think I'm quite an absolutist. Mm -hmm. So when I was trying to think of things, specific things, they kept generating into more general, bigger things because I'd think of something I want to put in and I'd go, well, that's not the purest essence of what (laughs) I mean by what I want to put in. And then I get this guilt in my head that I've missed out things that were important, you know, Mm -hmm. and you think they're an inanimate object or a memory, Laura, they're not going to be cross with you that you didn't put them in. And this isn't a definitive time capture. You know, it snowballed for me um, into... (laughs) Into quite a so, but in the end, I'm really happy with my list. And there's one thing definitely on there that I would never have remembered to have thought of putting on. And then when I actually went, like, what are my core memories of my life and moments? There was one that I thought, oh, I don't think I've ever thought about that before, but there it is. It does feel important. Oh, how lovely. Oh, I can't wait to hear. Okay, well, let's uh, let's find out what they are. Let's start with number one. So first of all, number one, and I'm really sorry if this is a bit twee. I was also very worried about my list. That they're going to go, gosh, she's the most saccharine person I've ever heard. Primroses. I'd like yeah, to exactly. Put- like, ooh, um, dew on a tulip. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, my first one is my brother. Um who I've I've got three siblings, so no offence to the other two. I do love them dearly. But my brother um, is the youngest of the four of us and my mum was actually sterilised before she had him. Oh, my word. So he is the epitome of something that was definitely not meant to happen no. that turned into the most wonderful thing in the world. And he's 10 years younger than me and he is... So sweet and fun and clever and probably the person that makes me laugh the hardest. Mm. And I think him turning up much later than the rest of us as siblings and kind of an an absolute miracle baby, he epitomises for me that sort of like, oh, even if this absolutely wasn't the way you thought things would go, don't wonderful things happen? Mm. There we are, exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. He played the music for me to walk down the aisle at my wedding because he's ah. really musical. Is he also the scientist? Is he the brother you do? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do Lex Education with him. So he, <laughs> yeah, he like, he studied science, but he's an amazing musician. Mm. Um, and because of the age gap between us, so I left home when he was about eight, nine. Yeah. And I moved I grew up in Somerset with all my family and I, and I went off to Canterbury to go to uni. So I was in Kent. Mm. So it was a good long chunk of distance away from them all, really, and and him being so young. But then when I left uni and went to London and, and lived there, he was kind of teens, like yeah. mid-teens. Yeah. So I took him to his first gig. He came up <laughs> to London and we went to Alexandra Palace and watched the Black Keys. Oh, brilliant. And he came to stay and then we drove home for Christmas one year and I really remember like coming down the A303 and we were making up Christmas lyrics to sing very loudly over the top of normal music <laughs> on the radio. Um and I would put my whole family, if the time capsule was big enough, I'd put them all in because I'm a very family-orientated person. But him especially, and especially now we work together, he's the first of my family that I've managed to rope into career stuff. So yeah. I've been doing the podcast. And a few years ago, he moved to Belgium. And I miss him so much because he was living in Brighton, where I live. And so he moved away. And I just miss him, physically miss him, just 
I loved having a family member in the same city as me because it was the first time in sort of 15 years that anyone had been within walking distance of me. <laughs> and then when he moved away, it was I was so proud of him for going and and trying something new and uh, and and doing it. But but setting up the podcast and having that weekly couple of hours where we do mess about and relax and it's just the highlight of my week. Yeah, an excuse to come together because you yeah. can you can let it go by, can't you? Those things for months and months so easily, can't you? And yeah. you think why don't I talk to you for two hours every week you're so fun and lovely but you you can't and you don't because life gets in the way whereas if you sort of semi-schedule it as a work thing (laughs) you you have to do it then and it's it's lovely and showing him to the world like not that I showed him to the world he'd have found a way to find the world but the reaction that the public has to him on Lex Education Mm. is beautiful they just love him and I'm like yeah I told you he's funny and he's so (laughs) nice he's just brilliant and and people go who is this guy and you go he's he just works in software and lives in Belgium (laughs) he's wonderful yeah he's my baby brother he's isn't he great and I I love that (laughs) well do you know I think part of that Laura is your reaction to him is that you, I've listened to him, I love it, actually, because you laugh all the time at your brother. He's funny, yeah. He's funny and he just, he comes out with stuff and it will be a non secretaire or or some stupid pun or his exasperation. Mm. And I think because, you know, like all the best double acts are people that, are so comfortable in each other's company, aren't they? Mm. And I think with him, I do just get to be myself because we set up this podcast. If You, you probably won't have heard it, the listener, not you. I know you've done your research because you're a professional. But <laughs> my brother's teaching me GCSE science because um, I don't really like science and I don't understand it and I didn't see the point. But I did say to him right <laughs> at the beginning, I said, I'm not going to play dumb. There's just enough things in the world where the woman is an idiot and yeah. you know so I said I'm not going to play dumb if I get it I get it but <laughs> I most often don't get it no. or don't have the attention span to try particularly hard to get it <laughs> but I feel like I can be myself in the podcast I don't feel like I have to get into a character to be stupid or try and find the silly no I just can actually be quite an honest version of myself and that's really lovely yeah I've worked with my son on this he produces it Oh, really? As your son? Yeah, I have a, oh. exactly the same experience, which is that we could easily have gone through life seeing each other occasionally, probably through his children. That would have been the thing that would have brought yeah. us together constantly. And it still does. But on a daily basis, we will talk about this and then yeah. other things. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I'm the one who says, yeah, all right, yeah, enough of the anecdote. Let's get back to <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've roped our dad in to a couple, an episode now. We've got more lined up because, again, you kind of you do go like, I just I want to show everybody, and I want you know to to sort of pull you in. Because my dad's been very supportive. Well, all my family have been very supportive of my career the whole time. But my dad, like especially in the early days, used to put on a gig in the village local to to where we grew up. So. Right. Like he's kind of shown an interest in being involved in little ways throughout it. And then as I kind of got more professional with it and, you know, there was less time for that sort of thing, it Mm. faded a little bit. So when me and Ron kind of got the podcast going, we were like, let's see if dad will get involved. And he sort of did that thing of not being too enthusiastic, but not saying no, which I was like, I think that means he really wants to. He just can't, can't admit it. So we roped him in. But it's, it's lovely. I, I, I mean, I guess it's nepotism, isn't it? But isn't nepotism just delicious? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, if we're talking about things you could do on a podcast that you would never be allowed to do on a television programme, that is one of them. Yeah. But in fact, you know, television is fantastically nepotistic. Yeah. I just think it's, I don't know. I have a lot. Of, I've, I found this, the, the podcast, almost very difficult. I'm a very people orientated person. So you very nearly just had a list of five people that were all going to have to sit in a time capsule together. But I limited myself to one. But I really thought for this moment in time, we're doing that and and him being away and mm-hmm. just where I am and in needing people around me a lot. He just is a very constant person. And I'm very grateful to live in a time where... Um, despite the 10-year age gap and the the 
gender difference, we can talk about our worst anxieties and our happiest times and really have that relationship that I don't think there's many eras in history where you would have had the opportunity to have that relationship. No. And, and I'm really grateful. Or the opportunity to record it. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Certainly not that. <laughs> but it's there. It's there. You've got it. You know, you've yeah. got this thing. When you think back to what you have of you with your family that is from a time that's gone. My younger brother came to stay with me when I was at uni. At the time, I remember, I seemed to, I think I probably thought, what the fuck is he doing here? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was great. It was very sweet. He was, he was always, in a way, more sociable than I ever was. He was very good at fitting in. Yeah. And, uh, and people really loved him. They were happy to have this 14, 15-year-old go around with them. Yeah, I remember one of the plays I put on, my dad driving over to watch it and bringing my brother and them coming to the after party. I don't know how old my brother would have been. He can't have been more than 13 because I'd left uni by then, so maybe 12, 13, mm -hmm. and him sitting up and being there at this house party that we were having. And my dad can outdrink anybody. So, <laughs> like, we were all there like, oh, we're uni students, we're doing this and that and blah, blah, blah. And my dad's just there quietly putting away two for everyone we're having and not even wobbling. Yeah. And my brother being there and you think like that's this is it's nice to have those additions, you know, and to know that there's there's never really been a part of my life I've had to hide from my family like they they're all right with oh, of course you're getting hammered, you're uni, you, that's yeah. what you're doing or of course you're doing this. It's it's nice to not have to have separate worlds. Yes. It's unusual I think, particularly when you do that thing of going away and you become the person that you want to be. Yeah. You start being yourself, but in a way you've not been yourself all through your teenage life or you've not let your parents see it. A lot of teenagers do that. And then suddenly away you go and you're yourself and then they turn up. For a lot of people, that's a really awkward moment when you go, yeah. mm, do I now show them or do I pretend I'm the person I was? Yeah. My dad particularly has always sort of, might have raised an eyebrow, but he's never commented that much on who I've been at different phases. He's let it happen, mm. which is amazing, really. I think that that's the sort of parent I'd want to be. And just, I think there can be some difficulty sometimes. Like there was always an ongoing joke that I couldn't cook. And it used to drive me nuts because I'd think, yeah, no, I couldn't cook when I was 13. Mm -hmm. I'm 30 now. Do you not <laughs> think I've learned to cook in the 17 <laughs> years in between? And all my friends sort of in my adult life would be, why do your family all make jokes about your cooking? Like, you're an amazing cook. And I'd be like, oh, because I once baked a cake that went wrong. And so now I'm stuck <laughs> in that sort of world of that is who I am and I can never be anybody else. And that can be really difficult, I think, because mm. that's when you start to argue with your family is when they're not letting you be yourself. Yeah, and that does happen with families. I had an uncle whose name was Jocker. So when he was a little boy, wanted to be a jockey but couldn't say it properly. Ah. And so his nickname was, what do you want to be? I want to be a jocker. Okay, jocker. And it stuck. And for all his life, he was jocker. Uh, and I wondered sometimes if that didn't slightly annoy him. Yeah. I think it's important to check in every now and again and go, you still like this? Do you still want that? Like, you know, yeah. and I tried to do that. I've got older nephews now and I try to sort of ask questions rather than tell them. And, or you know, you don't want to do... You know, oh, you know, if they want to try something, you don't want to go, oh, oh, you don't like that, or you've had mm. that before and you didn't like it. So you try it again, then, yeah, go for it, even if it wastes it. Like, try it again, yeah, see if that's changed now. And and I I know that that's really hard to do, mm. um, especially when it's a full time caregiving situation. But it is, I think, important to let people change yeah. and and hear them when they're telling you who they are, rather than think you know better because you saw a previous version. Very good. A great point. Well made. Yes, but we will take Ron and we will put him into the time capsule for yes, you. Yes, please. Do you want a specific age for him? Oh, right now. Right well, no, now. all the time. No, all the time. All, all the, the time. Because he's just always been wonderful. <laughs> he's just always been wonderful. Lovely. Okay, that's the first thing, Laura. Let's yeah. just find out what the second thing is. Right, this one might be even twier than putting my goddamn brother into a time capsule. <laughs> I'm so sorry that I appear to be such a prawn. But um, I'm putting sunshine and light quality into the time capsule. Lovely. Um, 
I was really trying to narrow down what I was thinking about on a specific thing. I was like, being outdoors is really important to me and outdoor space and walking. And mm. But I think even more than that, the essence of what I love is an amazing light quality. Huh. So I particularly love sunny days. I love sunshine. I love a house that lets light in. I love windows. Mm. Um and I love being outside, but I think it is that shininess. I think I, <laughs> because I also love like a really beautifully lit pub, you know, with the mood lighting. And I finally got through to my husband a few months ago what I meant because he would always just put the big light on in the living room. And I'd be like, oh, no, I've bought all these cute little lights. Like, put the money, but it was so annoying turning them all on. <laughs> and then I can't remember what caused it, but one day, he got what I meant about the texture of the light. He, and he said, I thought you just liked it darker. And I was like, <laughs> no, it's not the darkness. It's not how bright it is. It's the glowiness and the way it shapes the room and the, and the colours of the light and the, the feel and the texture of it. And mm. one of the things I love about our house, we, we finally bought a house in 2020 and mm. the sun really moves around the house during the day and so we get all the morning light comes through one side of the house and then there's only really the midday portion where there isn't sunshine coming directly through the windows and then in the evening it all floods round through the front of the house and I just love that I love the you get a real like almost like a, a theatre gobo of a window projected onto the wall in the evening and in the morning you just get all this light streaming through the kitchen window and it it's a massive mood changer for me I, I like the idea that the kitchen is the place you'd be in the morning I yeah think. it's sunshine you go down and that's your welcome to the world and it's a different light in the morning isn't it it's it sort yeah. of feels brighter in the yes. morning, even though it's the same sunshine. <laughs> in the evening, as it comes around, there's a sort of a yellowness to it, yes. to it as the sun yes. comes through the, the sky. There's a light that I particularly love, and I have it in a couple of photographs I've taken, which is that really sunny weather on holiday, yeah. but towards the end of the day when it's really low. Yeah. So in fact, as it shines on things, it picks out certain things and the rest of the things are in shade. So you'll have like a pine tree that's still being hit by the light, and that will just zing out in a photograph. Oh. I have a photograph of my children standing under a pine tree in the south of France. Yeah. And I love this photograph because they're lit by it and the tree is lit by it and everything else is slightly darker. Oh, it's beautiful. They always talk about the light in the south of France, don't they, with the is it impressionist painters would yeah. go there and, and that sparkling quality. But a lot of artists will paint early in the morning or late at night or yeah. as the sun sets. They'll try and catch that moment. Because in a way, that's when light is having the greatest effect because it's creating more of a shadow. It's a bit like having the big light on in the room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just don't get that texture with it. And I love wintry light too. You know when like the trees have lost their leaves and you get that the real blackness of a bank of trees against just a grey winter sky or something. But it's that real like ink pen drawing black stickness of the trees mm. I love that that soft light behind them but the difference to my mood on a day when you wake up and it is just clear light streaming in yeah. to a sort of moody day I don't know it just means the world that I would put that perfect light mm. one of the big things that that I think has made a huge difference to my life as I've sort of got luckier and, and bought a house is having outdoor space. Mm. So going from 10, 15 years of living in flats with no outdoor space. So in order to use the world, you had to get dressed and put shoes on and go and leave. <laughs> and now I have a garden. And for years I had an allotment. I hired an allotment across Brighton. I used to get in the car and go and mm. pack everything up and make sure I didn't need a wee for at least two hours. <laughs> to go and sit on the hill and just be outdoors and I just I think having that thing now where once the weather gets good I can open the back door and just go and sit and have my cup of tea on the back table mm. or of an evening just potter about the garden and do one thing or just take my dinner out and sit out there and have it that means the world to me to not be indoors and to be with that light and and it's not like I'm sat there thinking like oh goodness look at me with the light that's made all the difference <laughs> I don't even think about why I want it most of the time but in order to make this list I was like what is it about what am I thinking about and and I think it is the light mm. I did a massive walk last year I did an, an ultra marathon 
I didn't run it, I walked it, right. but it was 106 kilometers and oh, you just walked yeah. straight through. So it took us about 27 hours. God. And the whole day, I absolutely loved it. And we hit about 10 p.m. and we've been walking for 13, 14 hours. And I thought, I'm having a great time. I love this. And then it got dark <laughs> and I got tired. And the overnight experience of it was one of the worst experiences of my life. Mm. I genuinely hated it. I wanted to stop the entire time and I I was miserable, f- properly, properly miserable. And then when the sun started to come up again, once it got past that greyness of the first breaking of it and into actual proper light, boom, I was going again and I was happy again. And and there is something to be said, I think, for giving in a little bit to the fact that you're an animal and just go, I am supposed to sleep when it's dark. I'm not supposed to do stuff in the winter. There's no food or light. Nope. My battery doesn't run as well. Like, yeah. that's fine. Be really productive all summer. And then, yeah, have a sit down, love. Like, you, you're just a hedgehog <laughs> in a human's body. You're, you don't need to do this. People have asked me, what's my favourite time of year? My, well, when I say people, I mean grandchildren have asked me, what's my favourite time <laughs> of year? And I yeah. always say spring. What I really love about it is four o'clock in the morning, it's light, and it's light till 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. I love the autumn because I think at this time of year, I love this, but there's a little voice in my brain going, but you are going to have to do winter again, and what if you hate it, and how are you going to cope with it, blah, blah, blah. And then autumn makes me go, oh, I'm ready for it not to be summer. I'm mm. ready for this to go to bed. The seasons are perfect. They are exactly what they need to be. <laughs> and I want the winter by the time it comes. I'm ready for that darkness and for fairy lights to be on and for that coldness and to close curtains and to change your clothes. Like, So I love that winding down where I go, yeah, that was enough. That was good. And the heat's different. There's like a residual heat in the buildings and the stone. It's not like that sharp heat. You know where spring, like, it would be cold and then the sun comes out and you suddenly go, God, I'm sweating. Take yeah. all of the layers off. <laughs> and then the sun goes in and the air is freezing again. Yeah. Autumn, for me, there's just that warmth built in and and I'm always content for summer to fade away, whereas spring, mm. it's so beautiful and I'm so anticipatory of the summer, but the little voice in my brain is going, oh, no, oh, no, don't love it too much because it's not going to stay. And then I'm OK that it's going when it goes. Yeah, well, the fact that it's not just light, it's also lighting. I love lights. I think I do. I think mm. <laughs> I think I might be a six-month-old baby. <laughs> I, <just quite, laughs> I like when the light changes. Oh, that's sparkly. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but you are also a hedgehog. That's yeah, a yeah. uh, six-month-old hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. All right, I'm going to put that light in, that, that bright light, though. That's the one that's going in. Yes, yes, thank you. Gorgeous. That's the second thing, Laura. Yeah. Well, I hope my brother's all right sitting in the sunlight in my time capsule. Well, better than leaving him in the dark. No, that's good, yeah. He's got Just some light. Sitting there, you go in and he says, where have you been? I've been sitting in the dark for hours. <laughs> On the second day, Laura gave you light. Be grateful, <laughs> little boy. Are you now going to put in an arc? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope you don't mind. I've got more than five. I've got, in fact, two of everything from planet Earth to go on here. <laughs> OK, ad break time. So have a listen in case you want to buy something or you could make a cup of tea or, well, you know what the other thing is that most people do. Either way, we'll be back very soon. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Uh, can I just say that there's one person who seems to have misunderstood my inference before the ads when I said, you know what the other thing is that most people do. Housework isn't what I meant, although the place does look very nice. Uh, and I shan't mention Peter and Shirley. I most certainly didn't mean that, Peter. Close the curtains, please. Right, let's quickly get back to the lovely Laura Lex. No, I thought I'd put in a career thing next because mm. my career does mean a lot to me. And I was torn between two things. I almost put in being the warm-up on Upstart Crow, the TV series. Oh, brilliant. I did all series two and three studio warm-up. And I nearly mm. put that in because it was a really wonderful experience. But perhaps predictably, I've gone with the night I did live at the Apollo. Uh, yeah. Which to me was just the greatest moment of feeling like that was the pinnacle. I remember thinking to myself that night, if this is all it ever is, I did something that very few people get to do statistically yep. and I did it well. I really did it well. Mm. So because of Live at the Apollo being just pure stand-up, you just go and you do 20 minutes in front of a live crowd, it was so perfect for me because that's what I do and it's what I'm good at and it's wonderful. So all of the panel shows and things that are comedy, they're stand-up comedy adjacent, they're comedy, but they aren't quite what you've trained for 10 years to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember doing, you, you when you do Live at the Apollo, you go and do a gig the week before, um, just a little London club, and, and you sort of try it, you set in front of the producers so that they can just say, oh, can you change that word? Or like I used to reference Debenhams in a joke, and they'd say, can you say department store? You know that. Mm, yeah. And there's a really wonderful man called Paul Byrne who we lost a few years ago but he was a comedy director and um, writer and just brilliant brilliant man and I was quite nervous and everybody else seemed to have somebody there at that show that was helping them or there'd be an agent there or whoever they wrote with or whatever and I didn't have anybody Mm. and I was really nervous and Paul just looked me in the eye and went why are you nervous and I was like oh because everybody else on this bill has a much bigger profile than I am they all had Radio 4 series, and they'd all done all the panel shows, and this was going to be my first ever TV ever. Oh, my God, that's amazing. So I just felt so out of my depth, and he just looked at me and he went, of all the people in this room that should be nervous, it's not you. This is what you do. These people only gig once or twice a week. You are out five nights a week. This is what you do. And I know he was just, they were all brilliant too. He wasn't slagging them off, but he was saying what I needed to hear. Mm to make me realise that, yeah, actually, of all the times to have imposter syndrome, that wasn't it. Because what I can do is go and stand in front of a live crowd and make that brilliant. I, I'm really good at that. Mm. And it's one of the few things that I feel quite comfortable going, no, I am really good at that. I'm not the best person on a panel show or whatever. I haven't trained for 10 years to do that. I have trained. And that moment, you you, you get there at Live at the Apollo and Sarah Millican, wonderful Sarah Millican, was hosting my episode. Mm. And she's so brilliant. And she'd helped me choose an outfit and she taught me through all of the worrisome things. And then there's this bit where they put you behind the big screen and you're stood in a little taped out square <laughs> and just holding the microphone and then the screen went up and I walked forward and I said a joke and the audience laughed and I said another one and they laughed and I went oh it's a gig oh (laughs) I know how to do a gig it's a gig (laughs) and then there was a bit where I instead of saying department store I said Debenhams because of course I did that's how the joke went and Mm -hmm. I did it and I I sort of stopped went oh I knew I'd fuck that bit up I'm not supposed to say Debenhams and the crowd just lost it and so I was like right we've got to do that bit again and you kind of editing on the fly and I and I was improvising and messing about with the crowd and I just thought yeah I'm good at this this is this was what I was meant to do with my life this is where I'm meant to be and live comedy is where I am best and where I am happy Mm. 
It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to be in front yeah. of an audience and to be relaxed. Yeah, and truly relaxed. Yeah. Like, I've had some terrible bouts of depression in my life, and mm. the one of the worst ones was 2017, and I was just broken, a really broken person. But I was still gigging because those 20 minutes every night on stage was the only time I got any respite from my brain, you know, yeah. because gigging is such an, a whole brain activity. I was able to switch off all of the little levels of anxiety thought because I needed all of the like tiramisu of my brain <laughs> to, <laughs> to be on what I was currently doing. So it's just the greatest relaxation and puzzle and activity and joy yes it's a fantastic thing also to put it into perspective to not walk out because that's a huge crowd that's yeah. a big theater yeah and you won't in your life unless you become i don't know dara o'brien or something in in the future you, you just won't play those sort of gigs. no playing two and a half thousand people yeah it's ridiculous isn't it it's amazing uh, yeah and but just then the... to have them then react the same as the people in a club I've got you. And especially there's something beautiful about that this level where you walk out on stage and nobody's heard of you. Nobody knows who you are. You're not the headline name of life at the Apollo. No. It's people going, oh, this one's not famous either. Damn it, mm. we drove to London to watch this. <laughs> I wanted to see, I wanted to see Dara. Oh, I wanted, to, I'm here for Sarah. You know, you know, that, that completely understandable. And then you start talking and they go, oh, actually, I like her. Mm. Or the, maybe they're not, I like her, but to me it feels like they like me. They like the jokes or whatever, but I've always sought approval. I'm a very needy person. I need people to like me and love me, and I need that feedback. And and comedy is so pure for that. You say it, they laugh or don't laugh. It's so binary, and mm. it's so beautifully transactional and fleeting and simple, and I love it. I mm. love that. And I think when you say they like me, they do like you. I think that's why they laugh. You don't laugh at people you don't like. They may say the funniest thing in the world, but I still don't think it makes you laugh. Even if what they're doing is weird or what they're doing is uh, aggressive sometimes, or they will just be not what you necessarily agree with. But if they, as a person, can make you go, you see what I'm doing here, I'm yeah. being funny, and you go, you are funny, that's fine. And it is funny, and you will laugh. But I think if you don't like the person... It's very difficult to laugh. I Yeah, I agree with you that it's difficult. I don't think people don't. I do think it's difficult. Mm. I think it's harder to laugh. And I think it's a different quality to the laughter. Yeah. Um, it's sort of, okay, all right, yeah, that, that was a good joke. Yeah. I'm fascinated by laughter. I did my degree on in stand-up comedy, well, in comedy and laughter theory and in humour. And laughter is very rarely what we think it is. Laughter is very, very rarely... I find that funny. Laughter is much more of a language tool of smoothing out a conversation. Like if somebody was to put the laughter into this conversation in a transcript, you'd notice we very rarely done it to each other to say, you are funny, here you go, ha ha ha. We've <laughs> much more done it when we are saying something, like I will say something and then I will laugh to you to show mm -hmm. you the tone I mean what I said what I said in. Yeah, so, it's almost we're doing little emojis all the time. Yeah, it, yeah. it is. It's massively like, and it's a very gendered thing. It's a very status-influenced thing, and it's a very in-person eye contact thing. There's so many things that change laughter. Mm. Um, but it's interesting that when you're on stage, you don't do that. I mean, hardly any performer does that, says their joke, and then laughs at it. Even though in conversation, we might well yeah. do that. And in fact, lots yeah. of people can't say anything funny without laughing hysterically. Yeah. At it. yeah. It's almost to like show... a tick. I'm joking. It's yeah. a joke. I didn't mean to be rude to anybody. Whereas to have the confidence to say something that you mean as a joke and let the people get it without giving them any indication that it was meant as a joke, it's a risky thing to do. In life, I constantly get people say to me, sorry? Yeah. I, I was joking. <laughs> When you sort of watch a lot of stand-up comedy, you hear people's ticks that they put into the gap in case there's no laugh. Mm -hmm. You hear people da 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 joke. So 
or uh, um, but anyway, or just uh, breathe a breath. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and most people, you don't really hear it until you're looking for it, or it's been done so often that you can't unhear it. But Mm -hmm. most people have a buffer that they put in the gap just in case. Yeah, uh, people have always laughed at that joke but what if they don't today I should put a noise in but it's interesting like I do a lot of directing of people's comedy or helping them with their scripts and it's the first thing you have to chuck away because if you keep talking in the gap that you want people to laugh in you will stop them laughing because they go oh hang on he's still talking mm. so you have to sit back and let the laugh run its course otherwise you dampen it with yeah. anything Yeah, and in fact sometimes you need to in a way give the audience permission you need yeah. to leave that gap and go, well, I'm going to stop here because you're allowed to laugh here. Yeah. And so the first it's... few laughs might be slow. Yeah. It's very difficult to do because when you're on stage, like a millisecond feels like eternity. Oh. <laughs> but that's that thing of being relaxed, isn't it? That when you're relaxed, your time is different to everybody else's time. That you have enormous amounts of thinking time in yeah. between saying lines while people are doing it when people always say it's extraordinary you talk to people in the audience and you you just come back with jokes and you go it's because my time is different to theirs they're on a certain time I'm on comedy time yeah which means that yeah. I've got ages to think I've always thought of my brain as having different layers when I'm on stage there's the what am I going to say next what I think I'm going to say next watching people in the crowd to see how it's going and that's adjusting those on top how am I feeling moving Mm -hmm. um and then there's also like a ephemeral layer of the brain that is really in the material that you're doing and sort of slightly finding new ways to go with it so even a joke that you've done 50 times suddenly you see the dog that you're talking about whatever from a different angle and you think of a new way to run into this bit so Mm. I think that for me there's always been there's different stratas of which bit of the brain is working and it's why it's such a full brain activity to be on stage yeah and why it's so fascinating because it's constantly changing it's constantly variable yeah yeah Yeah. lovely well anybody who sees people walk out from behind that screen as it goes up with that dry ice coming out behind them and they go ladies and gentlemen someone you don't know yeah and you walk out and you have to say that first line I mean, I think everybody appreciates the nerve that takes and the determination it takes. I am going to do this, even though I'm bloody terrified. And then for them to laugh and for you to instantly be in it, what an experience. What a fantastic thing to treasure. Yeah. I've never felt so much like I belonged and was good at this. Mm. And there's a lot about the industry that makes everybody feel displaced or underappreciated or insecure. Mm-hmm. And that was a real moment of belonging in the world of comedy and the industry of comedy and just in the world. There's something very lovely, like even when did I do Love at the Polo? 2018. Mm-hmm. So social media was big. I didn't have a single negative comment. Fabulous. From the public, which I was very ready. <laughs> I gave my <laughs> phone to my brother. Actually, yeah, my brother was with me. I was in Cardiff at the Glee Club gigging the night that it went out. And uh, I gave my phone to him and was like, I'm not looking at Twitter because I know it'll be all the haircut, all oh, women, blah, 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 blah. There was nothing. Oh, brilliant. And there's something just like, oh, there is good in the world. <laughs> <laughs> we do just like jokes and silliness and, you know, nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. I'm proudly putting that in the time capsule for you. I am annoyed that we're going to have to do another interview where I can talk to you about being the warm-up for Upstart Crow, which, you know, we've missed out on that, I feel. Or we could talk about it. It's up to you. Oh, I just loved it. I really loved it. I I think it was my first experience of doing studio warm-up. It's not easy. No, it's not. But because I had the hardest start because... Since I've done more, I've done things like Pointless and um, a couple of other scripted things and and more game shows. And they are so much easier than scripted (laughs) because with Upstart Crow, there were costume changes and scenes that needed to be reset and difficult lines. My God, the actors had to learn some tough lines in that. So there's a lot of stopping and starting. And those records were three and a half hours long. Mm. And you go on as the warm up and you're so nobody wants to hear from you 
absolutely nobody is interested <laughs> in what I had to say. They want to watch the minutiae or they think they want to watch that and maybe mm. they do for an hour and then you realise that David Mitchell being repowdered and reset or <laughs> yes. Lisa going to get a bottle of water or whatever is, is not as, it's not three hours captivating. No. <laughs> or maybe I'm, you know, chatting away and trying to distract them because actually the actors don't want the crowd to see them getting these notes or doing this bit before mm -hmm. we go again. So it's tough. You go out and you start talking and you have no idea if you're going to talk for 20 minutes to cover a big thing or if it's going to be 30 seconds and then please bugger off, Laura, yeah, we've yeah. got to get back on. Like, you can't turn to the crew and go, well, I haven't finished this joke yet. <laughs> you just go, OK, we're going again. Even if you are, you've done the whole setup and you're about to do the punchline. It's incredibly tiring. But it was a really wonderful cast and crew. There were... Um, so Harry Enfield and then there was Spencer Jones and Rob Rouse. And so Spencer yeah. and Rob I know from the circuit and mm. they... Did they help out? Yeah. They, and, and what they did amazingly was never made me feel like I was lesser than the production for just being the warm-up. Mm. I felt so included in the crew. Oh, no, it's um, crucial. It's absolutely crucial, the warm-up. Yeah. If you don't get a good warm-up, you get someone in a way who's just trying to be funnier than the show, that can really ruin the show. If you get someone yeah. who just becomes part of it it's absolutely fantastic i think it was and and ben elton was on set the whole time and mm -hmm. he would do chats to the audience or he and i would have a bit of repartee sometimes yeah and i really remember a moment where there was some something had gone wrong and so i needed to do a big chunk i think i'd been up for about half an hour mm. and i turned around at one point and harry enfield was leaning against the set watching me and laughing and <laughs> i was like wow that is what a moment to just turn yeah. around and cash harry enfield's laughing at you all right, I'll take that. That's a win. Yeah. And and it was regular. It was regular work. It was every Tuesday um, for six weeks or however many episodes there were. I can't remember. And I will never forget the smell of the hand soap in um, this. It was those Southbank studios that aren't mm. studios anymore. No, They've gone. turned them into flats now. But it was one. Of, it was one of the last years those were in use. Mm. So I'd get the train into Waterloo and walk along the South Bank and go in and be have my dressing room, you know, <laughs> and and then go down to the floor. And it was. It was wonderful. It was really hard work. And, and there was that little slight insecurity, jealous thing in me going like, I want to be in the show. I don't yeah, want yeah. to be the one that's never on camera. But w it really stands out in my head as one of the jobs I've done that just the warmth and the... I remember Lisa going, have you checked what you're being paid? Do you, are you getting paid the same that men get for this job? Have mm. you asked? Have you checked? Check. And really looking out for me and just just the support and the, and and it was a great show i just got to yeah. watch upstart crow done and and watch them all trip over all these tongue twistery lines and swear and shout and and watch david say all those lines an yeah. astonishing number of lines he had to say yeah it was just a marvelous experience just really wonderful and i just felt enwrapped by it. It's Ben Elton writing at his best as well. It's absolutely one of the it's great really pieces wonderful. of writing he's done. And Mark Heap is probably one of the funniest men uh, in the world. Yeah. And what a show to be on set for. The sets yeah. were incredible. Everybody, I think it was one of those shows where everybody's enjoying it because it's interesting to do. The lighting's interesting and varied and the sets and the props are interesting and varied. The makeup's interesting. The actors are having a good time. <laughs> Nobody's in autopilot on no. on a show like that and so it was a just a fantastic experience and I think there are still people that I know you know who you know you know who your regular Twitter interactors are or Instagram and stuff mm -hmm. and there are a few that I know found me via me being the warm-up and followed me afterwards and right, so yeah. go we'll still say oh that was the first place we saw you but yeah just a really wonderful job that job well I look forward to putting Live at the Apollo, your performance. I'm going to have you walking out. From the light. Enormous round of applause. And at the end, standing ovation. And Sarah Millican says, no, no, please calm down. I have to finish the show. <laughs> no, they say, bring her back. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so that's three things we put in. Mm -hmm. Now we've got two more to go. Yes. 
Let's do the negative one so we can end on a positive one. Lovely. Um, I'm going to put silence into the time capsule Mm -hmm. um, because I'm sure your listeners, because they're podcast listeners, are doing, they're like me, they're doing everything they can to avoid silence. I just think all the worst things happen in silence. And I recently discovered that I think I've got tinnitus. So when other people have always been like, oh, the beauty of silence, and I've gone, it's awful. You can hear the electricity (laughs) and rustling and squeaky noises. And, you know, I've never been able to appreciate silence because I'm not sure I've ever heard it because but you don't know you have to you know you don't know what everyone else is hearing Mm. so I will do anything to block out silence I will just sing to myself I will have conversations with myself I'll talk to the dog I'll (laughs) always have the tv or a podcast or the radio or something on I can't even fall asleep to silence I just think silence lets all the bad ideas in (laughs) and I hate it I truly hate it. No, I don't blame you. I'm a bit like that myself. I do have tinnitus, and so I don't ever hear silence. But also, my hearing is not as good as it was and is deteriorating, no doubt Ah. about that, at my age. And uh, I have hearing aids, and they work very well, but they give you a different quality of sound. Ah. And it's not as good as the sound you had before. It's a bit tinnier. And there are certain things, like birdsong, that you'd think you'd love, but they really cut through. Oh, that must be so disorientating. Mm. So I'm happy to put silence in. (laughs) It's one of the things that slightly frightens me. I completely agree. And I associate silence so much with loneliness Mm -hmm. that it really doesn't take long of me being in silence for melancholy to descend. Right. So even when I get up in the morning, like I try not to have the TV on all day because I don't know, somewhere in the back of my head, I'm sure that screen time is bad dopamine or whatever, Mm. blah, blah, blah. So I do try not to do that, but I will eternally have a podcast or just something chatty. And And for me, I prefer talk to music. So don't mind music but it still lets my thoughts drift away and I like to have my thoughts like not like penned in but at least in a field rather than like just an open mountain range (laughs) I I like there to be limits to where my thoughts can end up because otherwise I sit there and I've gone down a rabbit hole and suddenly you go god I feel awful I feel so sad Mm. and and why I'm just sat here with a cup of tea in my lovely house just you know, having a quiet morning. And and I think, oh, because left to my own devices, I will canter away into the most dismal abyss. Whereas if I can feed myself interesting things, like one of my favourite podcasts is This Day in Esoteric Political History. And they're really short episodes. They're only 15 minutes usually, but there's three a week. Mm. But they're all about real tiny moments in American political history but because there's that, I think there's that slight removal of going, well, that's America. It doesn't matter to me. They're not a super part. Don't worry about it. And because a lot of it's historical politics, so you sort of know how it turned out. So yeah. you're not like, oh, God, what's that going to mean in 25 years? You go, oh, it was the 1800s. So we know what happened. It was bad, but it's done now. So it's mm-hmm. copable bad. Um, I like that sort of thing. I think it's why I like history stuff so much, because it's interesting sociological stuff, but it you know what what the result was. So there isn't any of that like unending anxiety to it. (laughs) I don't think we should be ostriches and hide from everything, but I do think that there is a certain amount of our brains just don't have the capacity to cope with knowing everything that we know. Not to be cut and dry and callous, but we cannot care as intently as our bodies were designed to about Mm. every minutia on the planet. We are not capable of caring with the same level of depth for our families as a news story from a country that we don't live in. And you either have to be cold and watch those things and then shut it down, which I can't do once it's in, it's in and I feel it. Mm. Or you have to choose to limit your sphere for your sanity. And and so as much as I hate the silence, but I, I don't want to let the whole world in to my tiny bubble. Mm. And so I think like cultivating the, the soundscape that you, you play in and, and just sort of helping to shape your thought processes is huge for me. So I, silence can go. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes that whole thing of having that sound there you're not necessarily listening to it. It's just filling the gap. I think that it is a bit like having music on. Like, I'm sure, you know, like listeners, your regular listeners, your voices, it's almost like a song because <laughs> it is just that, oh, my friend's back, Mike's back. 
and that's why podcasts like yours or, or Adam Buxton or, or Rich Herring, who I know you were discussing with Bilal, mm. it, it's not us as the guests. We might, we give you something to play off, but it's you that they like. It's you that they want to hang out with for an hour. And it's what you bring out that's the important thing. And I think that, that it, it's that company thing. It's, it is that uh, giving your brain a new tea bag or whatever, just to help it you be your best self, you surround yourself with people that you like. And, and that's what podcasting, like, I love a podcast with a big back history. You know, you go, oh, good, I've got 40 episodes. I don't have to be stringent with my listening. I can indulge and, and just have you keep me company all day. And that's lovely. That's wonderful. Portable company. Yes, it is a lovely thing to have done and to be doing. I have to say, we have, at this point, uh, I think over 300 episodes, which is... Perfect. Mad. <laughs> Madness. So, <laughs> unfortunately, in my world, no silence. But no. in your world, <laughs> none either. We'll get rid of it. No, it goes into go. the time capsule. Yeah. Lovely. So let's find out what the last thing is that you want to keep. So my last thing is putting on plays at primary school. <laughs> I went to a tiny village primary school in Somerset, um, just a state school, whatever they're called, the, the normal ones. Mm. Um, but I, the year six teacher, Miss Musgrave, was an amazing writer and wrote plays. And so every year, I think every class would do some sort of Christmas play, um, Nativity when you were in the younger ones and then sort of, you know, slightly different but Christmas-themed ones later. And then mm. in year six, every class would put on a Leavers show. They'd do a big show and she would write them. And... Any time we were doing something like that, I loved being in the school outside of hours, you know, like seeing yes. the school in the dark <laughs> and seeing things like glasses of wine on tables <laughs> in the school and seeing adults at tables that were too small for them or mm -hmm. seeing all the big chairs out and the the tiredness when you weren't leaving until the show was over at 8.30 in the evening. <laughs> what? The break to the usual routine and the buzz and the lights and the smell of hot dust on like hot lights and the car park being full and seeing all of your schoolmates' parents and just the, the pageantry and the excitement and the break to what things were supposed to be for, using them for a different thing, I think started my love of of performing, of seeing the world in different times of day and the different modes that mm. performance and theatre gives it and that enjoyment of going, yeah, it is just the school hall that we're going to do PE in or have assembly in tomorrow. Mm. But for right now, let it be special. Mm. And I think that that, like, I love that. I love letting special things be special. Like, you know, you, you've got a dress and, and, <laughs> and you put it on and, and then it's a special dress. And, yeah, it's just fabric. It doesn't matter. You can spill paint <laughs> on it or whatever. Or if you don't, but if you imbue things with that, then boring, normal things can be the most amazing events. And those plays at school, those the rehearsal time and the getting ready and the build-up and then people watching and... Oh, I just think it started this lifelong love of the performative moments. Mm. God bless Miss Musgrove. Oh, what a woman. I found the dictionary because I had a weird experience at primary school where because there weren't enough classes in the school for the number of years you had to do there. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you you always had to do two years in one class. And, and then there was a weird thing where I was moved up a year when I was too young and then had to stay back and do another year. So I ended up doing three full years with Miss Musgrave. Uh, and she was just the most brilliant teacher because she was quite acerbic and, and sarcastic. And she wasn't <laughs> like one of those softly, softly teachers. She was a bit like, no, come on, crack on with this. And I think because we'd spent so long together, we'd done three years and, and I was quite bright at primary school so we I felt like I had a good bond with her and I found the dictionary she gave me when I left was something I can't remember what's written in it now but it's something like you show a, a love of words and you're doing well with words here are more of them or something like that uh, brilliant. and then years later she came to a gig I was doing in my hometown and I saw her just a couple of years ago now mm. um and it was, I just, she was a wonderful teacher, really brilliant teacher and really funny plays. And just, I'm very grateful. She was probably the first in a long line of teachers that helped me, mm -hmm. you know, hone in on what I loved. Yeah. And another great drama teacher at the university called Judy, who was just brilliant. But those plays, that starting of that love of all of the things outside the regular hours, yeah. <laughs> I just loved it. 
Fantastic. And what a brilliant woman, because that's hundreds and hundreds of children going through her life. Hundreds. And to show that sort of personal dedication, which I'm sure she did for nearly all of them. Yeah. And that's yeah. it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So let's raise their pay. Yes, There please. we are. That's my one <laughs> bit of, little bit of politics. So my name's Ben Elton. Good night. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. <laughs> oh, Laura, how lovely. She was absolutely right. You have such a way with words. It's oh, lovely to listen to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a joy to talk to you. No, thank you for having me. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Laura Lex. Thanks for listening. You may like to listen to this podcast without ads, in fact. If so, then follow the link in the description of this podcast and have a look at Acast Plus. But before you leave, do subscribe to this podcast and rate or even review us for the benefit of others who may not know how lovely My Time Capsule is. Do send any reviews to me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook and we will make a right old fuss of your mate. If you enjoy the theme tune, then you can download or stream it on Spotify. It's written and performed by Pass the Peas Music. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. Okay, right, got to keep fit. I'm walking 11,000 steps a day for charity at the moment. Check out my Twitter page for details and contribute if you can. I did actually think about starting to run, but I can't really run well. Not at my age. So I thought I'd check it with the doctor first, and he did the full checkup, you know, tested everything. Eventually, he told me that he thought I needed a pacemaker. I said, a pacemaker? I can hardly run, let alone keep up with someone. Bye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.